Radio Mano Papachango. Chris and everyone, uh, this is Matt from the uh, UP of Michigan, just out on a, a sunrise ski with my buddy Otto, and uh, it's 7 degrees, got about 10 inches of snow last night, and uh, everything is the way it should be. I just want to thank you for, um, for what you do, providing a uh, peaceful, authentic place for conversation and ideas and stories that um, help me to stay grounded and help me to brighten my little corner of this world and hopefully uh, maybe all our corners will connect someday. Take her easy. Chris Ryan, I'm Oscar from Kenya living in Japan for the past four years. I just moved out of Osaka and I'm currently living in Kyushu as of yesterday. That is Saturday, sorry, Monday, the 24th of September. And damn, I've been living in Osaka for too long that I forgot how the night sky looks like. I'm out here at 12.25 a.m. I just missed my last train. I have to walk home because apparently the last trains in Kyushu stop at goddamn 11 p.m. <laughs> so I had to walk home for two hours and I realized I can see the stars at night. And damn, it feels good. It feels really good to see this. So thank you so much for your podcast. As I'm walking home, I'm listening to you. And most, uh, wasn't it Money Mustache talking about the future and my future? And thank you so much for everything. Have a good day, everyone. Hi, Chris. My name is Dragana, and I'm originally from Eastern Europe, but I've been calling Melbourne, Australia home for the last 18 years of my life. It's 5.30 on a Saturday morning and I'm heading to my San Pedro ceremony. Most knowledge that I have about plant medicine and psychedelics comes from listening to a podcast for years. Thank you so much for introducing that to my life because my life is definitely much better now. Thank you so much for those kind words, one and all. It's great how sometimes you miss the train and then you uh, find out, wow. I'm out here taking a nice walk and looking at the stars. Nothing wrong with that. It's pretty awesome. I uh, I love love the weather. I miss the weather when I don't get enough of it. And that tends to happen, uh, you know, because of comfort. Comfort separates us from so many of the best things in life. And uh, But how many of us are wise enough or strong enough to voluntarily give up the comfort of the train ride home and actually decide to walk. Rarely happens. So it's good when things go wrong and uh, you find yourself walking sometimes. Anyway, welcome to this episode of Tangentially Speaking. I am Chris Ryan, your host, and today's guest is... One of the most fascinating people around, uh, his name's Brian Hare. 
I've been wanting to meet him for a long time. He's one of these guests that I've had, you know, on my list of people that I wanted to get on the podcast for a long time. I, I think I, I've been corresponding with his wife for years because um, uh, Vanessa Wood wrote a book called uh, Bonobo Handshake. Came out, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And uh, she and I know some of the same people. I don't know if we've ever met in person, but we've um, corresponded a lot. And so I had a connection to Brian, and uh, I've been looking forward to to having him on the podcast. But he was one of those people I was waiting to, you know, be in the same place as him. Um, and then because of COVID uh, and going remote, I decided to just uh, try to get him on now. Plus, he's got a new book out, so... That's a good uh, excuse to get somebody on. Anyway, he's a core member of the Center of Cognitive Neuroscience. He's a professor in evolutionary anthropology and psychology and neuroscience at Duke University. Got his PhD from Harvard in 2004, although we're not impressed by that. Nobody's impressed. Doesn't matter. But still, PhD from Harvard. That's pretty cool. And uh, he worked at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig. Um, He's Smithsonian Magazine's one of the top 35 scientists in the world. And uh, he's published over 100 scientific papers. He's, uh, you know, he's a big deal. But he doesn't act like he's a big deal. He is just friendly and smart and likes to laugh and have a good time. And uh, definitely my kind of dude. So I'm really happy to have a chance to uh, to bring him to you today. Um, other than that, not a lot going on here. We in Colorado are waiting for a massive snowstorm that's supposed to roll in in the next 48 hours or so. Um, they're saying it might be the biggest snowfall in Denver since 1885. Um, expecting several feet of snow. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of bunkering down here or hunkering, I guess, hunkering down. Do you hunker down in a bunker or do you bunker down? I think you hunker down. Anyway, we're hunkering down. Got some big pot of chili and, uh, Got some brown rice. I've got my bag of dried fruits and nuts. I got a propane generator that I bought for the van uh, that's ready to go if the power goes out. Yeah, you know, and there are lots of very friendly deer walking around that we can just go out and kill and gut if we really need to. But I don't think it's going to come to that. I think it'll just be a beautiful snowstorm and then everything will go back to normal. Speaking of things going back to normal, uh, I don't know if that's happening. I don't know if normal is within reach anymore, but some good news came out of Washington today. Congress approved uh, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, and the Democrats snuck some really good stuff into that package, like uh, significant payments to people in the lowest 20% uh, of the um, economic spectrum. Uh, No payments to people in the top 1%. uh, Significant and possibly permanent um, government assistance for um, 
people living in poverty who have children are going to get um, payments. And um, yeah, so I bitch and complain a lot about dysfunction in Washington and failure to address problems. So it's only fair that I give a shout out to um, especially the people who either live in Georgia or went to Georgia and worked hard um, to get those two Democrats elected to the Senate, uh, to the decent Republicans who work in the uh, electoral process in Georgia, who refuse to be pressured um, or, or refuse to give in to the pressure that they were getting from Trump and Lindsey Graham and <clears throat> other corrupt shitheads who were trying to uh, steal that election, the presidential election and the senatorial election. Um, so things worked. Uh, I think they just barely worked. I think we dodged a bullet and there are many more bullets in that chamber headed our way. But, you know, something good happened. Government is actually helping people in the United States uh, for the first time in a long time. So I'm very happy about that. And, um, you know, I know some people get confused. I get hate mail anytime I talk about politics. And, um, you know, I think some people heard me criticizing American culture, American political system, and so on. And, um, just sort of assume that I am against everything they're against. And so when I come out and say, actually, I have a preference here. Actually, I think Trump is a, you know, fascistic idiot. Um, yeah, people don't like that because they want to hear the sort of blanket dismissal of everything. And of course, I recognize that the Democrats are largely a party owned and controlled by corporate interests. But when they do something that goes against those corporate interests, or when those corporate interests happen to align with the interests of actual human beings, once in a blue moon, uh, I want to acknowledge it. Let's give credit where credit's due. So uh, no Republicans voted in support of this COVID relief package, not a single Republican in the Congress or the Senate. Uh, so they get no credit. They are doing everything they can to block any assistance going to actual human beings as opposed to massive corporations that pretend to be human beings but aren't. So that's it. That's my rant. I started off trying to be positive and ended up being negative anyway. Can't help it sometimes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for paying attention to me and to this, and uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian Hare. I sure as hell did. His books, by the way, um, I mentioned he has a new book out now. It's called Survival of the Friendliest. And uh, so you see how our visions of evolution and uh, human nature uh, converge and, and uh, resonate with one another in a lot of ways. He questions the Hobbesian uh, narrative of human evolution, as do I. And um, he wrote, he co-authored this book with his wife, Vanessa Woods. And uh, they also co-authored uh, a book that came out a few years ago called The Genius of Dogs. So we talk a bit about dog cognition as well. All right. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Speaking of supporting the podcast, I wanted to let you know that my mom has received uh, her vaccine and she feels comfortable going to the post office again. So international shipping is once again happening. So if you've been wanting to get your hands on a civilized to death shirt or hoodie or sex at dawn stuff or signed copy of any of my books, you can jump on that again. International shipping is once again on the table. Mom is happy to send that stuff off to you. So that's happening. Um, the tumblers I told you about that were made by Sani Ceramics, they have sold out. So I don't know if we're going to do another run on those, but they were uh, very popular. So they sold out pretty quickly. All right. I'm going to say goodbye now. I'm going to play you out with uh, one of my favorite songs. And it seems really appropriate for Brian Hare because Brian's all about animal cognition, non-human animal cognition, and how we evolve together with dogs, for example, how we communicate with dogs, how dogs perceive the world. Um, you know, he's really tuned into these sort of non-human cognition and, and uh, how, how we can communicate across species. And this song, I may have played this before on the podcast. I don't know. I've been doing this so long, I can't remember. Um, but it's a song called Seamus, and it's by Pink Floyd. And it's a song, as I understand it, that they wrote for their dog. They have this. They had this uh, hound named Seamus, and apparently Seamus would start to howl when they were jamming sometimes. And they noticed that there were particular grooves that really connected with Seamus, um, sort of blues grooves. And so they wrote this particular song for Seamus, about Seamus, and they recorded it with him singing. And it is one of the most incredible things ever um, because they're jamming together and he's crooning. Uh, you'll hear it. He's singing. He's definitely in the groove. And there's a a film called um, Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii, I think, where they're playing in the ruins of Pompeii. And uh, this song is filmed while they're recording it. And you can watch Seamus getting into it. So you can probably find that on YouTube, I'm sure. All right. So Seamus by Pink Floyd. And then my conversation with Brian Hare. Thanks for paying attention, everybody, and thank you for supporting the podcast however you do it. Catch you soon. I was in the kitchen, shameless as the dog was outside.
right. It looks like we're live here with Mr. Brian Hare. Brian Hare, one of my best friends in the world is named Brian O'Hare. And uh, so I think of you often, even though this is the first time I've ever met you. <laughs> <laughs> well, what an honor to share a name. Yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. He's, I mean, I'll tell you how good a friend he is. He's a twin. Uh, and his brother Crosby and I and Brian, you know, hang out a lot and go carousing. They're they're Irish, so sometimes things go late. And one night uh, we were at the very late, very drunk stage of the evening, when especially Irish people and I'm Irish in background, you know, American culturally, but um, my name's Christopher Patrick Ryan. So there's a lot of uh, a lot it. of Ireland in there. Uh, and at one night, the three of us were hugging each other, and they said, "Chris, you're like the third twin." Oh, like, dudes! Like that. If if there's a higher compliment, I've never received it and don't expect to. So anyway, uh, maybe that you're the close. fourth. You're the fourth twin. You've got the name all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll look forward to the the uh, hug in the pub in the future. Uh, <laughs> Ryan Crosby and you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. We'll celebrate. So uh, this is the first time you and I've met. I've met uh, your wife. I don't know if we met in person or or just online when she was on the podcast years ago. Um. Vanessa, but you know, we have very similar interests, you and I, obviously. Uh, you're, what is your official, are you an evolutionary biologist or anthropologist or what, what is your actual title? I think my real qualification is in uh, biological anthropology, which I'm not even sure that exists anywhere anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. I, I, I think that's officially what's on the paper. But I, I'm interested in human evolution, the evolution of human cognition, psychology. Uh, so that means I spend a lot of time uh, with uh, animals, studying different types of animals. But also, uh, I'm really interested in the human animal, too. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I, I appreciate you referring to the human animal because it sort of annoys me how people distinguish humans from animals. And that's always a mistake. It's a, it's a widespread mistaken premise that only leads to mistaken conclusions. So it, it's good. We start with the notion that humans are animals. We're interesting and unique in some ways, but your last book is about dogs, the genius of dogs. Now you and Vanessa co-authored that. Did you, come to dogs by way of human cognition was it all about like why do we have this because all right i guess i guess my question for you is i know that the book starts from the premise that dogs have very special adaptations to humans and i guess my question is do humans have adaptations to dogs because we've co-evolved for so long yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, well, definitely our gut microbiota might, uh, but uh, the the, the premise of the the premise of the book is um, the genius of dogs is that I'm working with a developmental psychologist, Mike Tomasello, as a 19 year old, and he's explaining to me how our failure to find chimpanzees understanding something really simple, which is gestural communication. 
Uh, so when you gesture to someone, they understand you're trying to help them and reorient you in space that there's something over there that's interesting or something you want to know about. Um, that's easy for us. It uh, develops nine to 12 months of age and it's critical for participating in culture, learning language. Uh, this is really difficult for chimpanzees and bonobos, our two closest living relatives. And he was explaining to me how he thought and he said, this is unique. Uh, and so I've been raised by a Labrador retriever and just like anybody who's had a dog growing up, I play fetch and the dog would lose the ball and I would gesture to where it had gone and he would kind of run off in that direction. So I just, I think, I think my dog does that. Uh, and, and so that's how it all started and it was him saying, what, uh, and being surprised and then being a great scientist and getting excited about the fact he might be wrong and learn something new and. The whole thing took off because it ends up dogs do uh, have abilities that are very human-like that great apes don't seem to have. Uh, and then um, that it, it kind of got a life of its own. Uh, a lot of people got excited about dogs where, you know, historically uh, dogs were thought of as sort of like a boring big rat. And why would you pay all the money to study dogs in a laboratory if you could have rats uh, or go work with primates? But then all of a sudden when they have a human-like ability – uh, people started paying attention. And it's interesting. Do you think dogs have this human-like ability um, through some sort of evolutionary accident? Um, in other words, in the in the raw state, let's, which I, I suppose is a wolf, right? Is a wolf, a wolf is to dogs as chimps are to humans? Or is that, or chimps and bonobos? Is that, you know, yeah, it's I always... I, I, I would throw two, a couple extra species in there, but but yes, in general, uh, I would say wolf to dog, uh, uh, it would be um, chimp to bonobo, and then it would be uh, Neanderthal to human. But the um, uh, mm. the uh, in terms of where does the ability come from? I mean, we spent 20 years wondering that question, and, and first of all, we had to describe it. Is it really human-like, or are we just... Um, seeing something that's it kind of on the surface looks human-like, but it isn't. Um, and in tests we run with nine to twelve-month-old kids, dogs look really human-like on many of the same games that lead developmentalists to attribute understanding of uh, communicative intention. And what I mean by communicative intention is uh, an individual really uh, attributing uh, goal states or beliefs—not uh, beliefs, but goal states and intentions to you—and that your intention is to help. And so the idea is that dogs are making that same kind of inference. They're not just when you gesture, like sort of attracted to your hand or reflexively orienting in the way you're moving. They really are saying, oh, he's gesturing because he's trying to help me. And they're, they're, the idea is they're reasoning about what your intent is. And that's, that's a lot to attribute to a dog. Um, but based on the experiments we've done, that's sort of where we're left uh, thinking they're, you know, sort of what they're doing. And so we spent 20 years trying to figure out, well, if that's really true, where to come from? And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, dogs did evolve from wolves. Um, and we think that in that process, as an accidental byproduct of uh, selection for friendliness or tameness, uh, dogs evolved this unusual ability. So is this different from theory of mind, if they're attributing intention? It is a type of theory of mind skill, right? So if you think of theory of mind as sort of a suite of abilities, not just like one thing, but a suite of abilities, um, 
more, think of it like a toolbox, right? So, you know, there's a hammer theory of mind and a screwdriver theory of mind and, you know, whatever. Mm. Uh, you know, they have one of the theory of mind tools and it happens to be the tool that chimpanzees and bonobos don't have that's vital for kids to become fully human in terms of their ability to engage culturally with others. And so it was kind of a surprise uh, of all the tools that would be in, in the doggy theory of mind. This is the one. Where did it come from and how could it be so human like? Right. And why do species that are so closely related to humans not have that? which are also social species. So it's not it's not simply a social species accustomed to dealing with others has extrapolated that across to another species. It's something innate in wolves that's not existent in chimpanzees and bonobos. Yeah, so so it is that chimpanzees and bonobos have theory of mind abilities. Um, and in fact, um, if if you compare the dog toolbox, theory of mind toolbox to the chimpanzee toolbox, I think the chimpanzee bonobo toolbox would be much bigger. Oh, okay. um, it just happens that the little dog toolbox has this tool that happens to look a lot like our tool that's in addition to the chimpanzee bonobo toolbox. Uh, interesting. So it's more and, of an overlap situation. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so um, you know, kind of like the part of the Venn diagram that doesn't overlap between human, chimp, and oboe, the dogs have a, a, an overlap on that little piece, you know. And, and so um, uh, it's, it's, it became a little bit uh, clearer why that might be um, when um, originally we were thinking there had to be direct selection on this ability. And the logic there was, um, because I've studied wolves and we've compared wolves to dogs and it ends up wolves look a lot like chimps and bonobos on this mm. type of uh, problem solving. And basically you hide things, objects, food, whatever, and you just gesture to where it is. You're trying to help the uh, individual find what it is they're looking for. And uh, it ends up that uh, bonobos and chimps, they can learn to do it, but it takes a lot of practice. And once you teach them one cue, you know, like gesture with your hand, but then you start looking or, I don't know, maybe you point with your leg or something, um, even though you've just done it like 25 times and always told them the truth, and now you're going to use your leg instead of your arm, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're just lost. They're, they start guessing and choosing randomly. Um and so wolves kind of look the same way there. Um, and it ends up that dogs, it's just like, oh, yeah, no problem. It, they, they totally get it with different gestures. And um, uh, if they know one, they can kind of do a whole bunch. Um, and the other remarkable thing is, you know, it develops very early in human development, 9 to 12 months. Remember, uh, humans are born with their brain at 25% of the absolute brain size. By 9 to 12 months, it's not even 50% really of uh, brain development. Uh, and you've got this early theory of mind ability that's unique to our species that then allows us to start learning from others in a new way that other organisms don't. Um, and so that's one of the other features of this in humans is early emerging. Um, and that's what we found in dogs too, is that mm. it, 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 six to nine weeks, dogs are already starting to show skills that are very human-like. So it's early emerging in us, it's early emerging in them. Um, it starts to get kind of weird how similar it is. And so um, what helped in explaining all this is I, I went to Siberia and to cut a long story short, there was a population of foxes that were mm. experimentally domesticated and they have the same ability. Uh, even though it was not selected for it and the, it, when the experiment on the foxes began, I mean, I wasn't even born. Um, and so they, they weren't thinking about this when they were doing the, the selection. Um, but as an accident of their selection, 
experiment, they have a population of foxes that look very dog-like on this ability compared to a population they didn't select. And they were selecting for friendliness and lack of fear of humans, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. And so, and so, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you, you were going to oh, say the same thing. Like, like the other things that happened was they got the floppy ears. And- yeah. Yeah. So they selected for friendliness um, and they kept a control line that they selected randomly for response to humans. And in that population they selected for friendliness, you see a higher level of not only friendly behavior towards humans, they're now attracted and they love to be held by people and want to be pet. And they get excited when they see people instead of running around and running away or biting if you try to touch them. Um, but they also have a higher frequency of floppy ears and curly tails and their um, piebald coats. They have a shorter muzzle in general they have smaller teeth um none of these things were selected for they have uh you know much higher levels of serotonin which is related to um you know uh social interaction aggression towards others um and so and their adrenal cortex um you know there are which is part of your hba axis is um has reduced um reactivity so they're basically mm-hmm. less fearful of uh, novelty um again not all they were selecting on is they at seven months they walked up to each fox in this program and they just did it come forward and want to be near a human and then if they did they tried to touch it and if it had a positive response uh they would find another fox that was of another gender a sex and they would breed those guys together uh and they did that over generations and they ended up with all these changes happening uh as a byproduct or an accident of of that selection and it ended up one of those things was also uh reading human gestures so you prop i'm sure you understand genetics better than i do but is is the is the presumption then that the genes that are encoding for that serotonin production or or whatever sort of mechanisms underlie lack of fear of uh, you know unusual stimulus that those genes that like, I don't even know if this is how evolution works on a genetic level, if it's a single gene or if it's a packet of genes, but they they seem to have a suite of effects on the genome, right? That include the friendliness, but and lack of anxiety or fear, but also the floppy ears and the curly tail and all the rest of it. So that's the underlying theory here, right? That, yeah, so, that there's a commonality. Yeah. And so you can have, um, uh, you know, it, it, as we've learned more about genetics, I think most of us learned about Mendelian genetics, where there's yeah. sort of a gene for this trait and you can either have kind of two versions of it and maybe it affects the trait you're interested in. If you've, if you've got, you know, one version of the gene, you may have the trait. If you don't, you, ha- you don't or whatever. But it ends up, as we've learned more, it's it's more fun than that. It's more complicated. It ends up that there's kind of different characters in your genome. Um, they're kind of genes that are kind of your everyday gene that kind of do like what we learned before. But then there are librarian genes um, and they kind of are like a librarian where they kind of decide which genes are going to get read if each gene is like a book with kind of information in it. Um, you know, the librarians can point you to different books and say, oh, you should really read this book. 
Um, and so that what it means is certain genes have more influence on the body behavior than other genes. Um, and so if you can, if, if selection targets one of those librarian genes instead of sort of your everyday average gene that just sort of has a book worth of information in it, um, you're going to have a bigger effect uh, on the genome. And then the other thing is if you think about development. And so the thinking about um, why, how we can explain that you're selecting on behavior to be friendly in approach, what does that have to do with ears? Um, right. You know, what does that have to do with a tail? Um, uh, and the, the idea is that if you're going to change behavior, you're going to have to do something to the genes that shape behavior really early in fetal development. And so the genes that are going to change behavior and be altered early in fetal development are busy genes and they're doing a lot as the organism develops. They're responsible for a lot of different things, not just behavior or the neuroendocrine pathways that are going to lead to behavior. They're also in charge of how the body develops uh, or they're involved or implicated. Um, and so uh, if you have a, a sort of a set of librarian genes or um, uh, a set of early developmental genes that are impacted uh, to change behavior, uh, as it develops, well, then you can have this cascade of effect. And so that's where people are sort of looking is early in development, the selection must be impacting um, uh, a pathway that, you know, maybe is controlled by one of these librarian genes. Um, and I, there's a there's a specific hypothesis I could tell you about that seems to at currently be the leading hypothesis uh, on um, how this might play out in the in the genome, uh, and what's I, I, I think what's less important maybe of the specifics of that is just it seems like magic, but it ends up it's testable, and uh, there are leads on how to potentially falsify uh, this idea um, of what the specific genetics of this might be. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that's always interested me. I, I mean, I'm ad I'm admitting to my ignorance here that. You know, I, I have a very um, uh, sort of, um, what's the word, a layman's understanding of, of how genetics works. The, the Mendelian thing never seemed like it was enough to me. I hadn't heard of librarian genes, but it, it always seemed like things are being selected at a life stage, as you're describing in a developmental stage, where natural selection isn't really occurring. Sexual selection certainly isn't. Uh, you know, like the timing all seems weird. And, and um, you know, I'm sure you're, you're uh, familiar with the concept of spandrels, uh, sure. you know, Golden Leventon or however you pronounce his name. Yeah, Golden Such Levington, a yeah. Yeah, beautiful essay. I love, it's one of my favorite scientific essays. Sure. Uh, the Spandrels of San Marco, for anyone mm -hmm. who wants to look it up. It's available online, um, which is about how things, characteristics, that we attribute to evolution uh, occur accidentally or as byproducts of something else. And I guess the floppy ears could in fact be considered a spandrel no, in the sense that there's no advantage evolutionarily to the floppy ears. Uh, you know, no doubt uh, if it, my guess, I never met him, but my guess from repute would be that Stephen Jay Gould would happily include this as a uh, spandrel in his characterization. And um, 
Yeah, the idea is that, uh, you know, this one-to-one, you know, there's a gene for this one thing and each gene does one thing. Um, if anything, that's probably pretty rare. Um, most genes are in, um, have information that's going to be relevant to multiple traits. Um, and then most traits are going to have many genes, if not hundreds, possibly even thousands in the case of behavior in, implicated. Uh, involved in whatever trait that is. And then, um, you know, there's going to be uh, for any, um, there are also, uh, you know, genes that are, you know, going to have a big effect throughout development. So, uh, you know, kind of think about these library genes and a library gene, a library gene that's involved in development is like the superpower gene. Right. Um, uh, and so, uh, and then if you add on top of that, your question about natural selection most mortality in most organisms is early in development, which means that's when selection is at its strongest. Um, and, and, you know, Darwin's challenge was part of his challenge. And he wrote two books about domestication, which was, it was all about where does variation come from? And he was using domestication as an example of, you know, look at all this variation in these domesticated animals as they're under selection. There's plenty for selection to act on. And a lot of the variation is going to be early in development as a result of these library genes getting knocked around. So um, uh, that's sort of one of the th places people are uh, really excited about. Hmm. But, I mean, I mean, it it raises so many questions for me because, as you say, so many different genes are are implicated in any given trait or behavior. Certainly, behavior and trait that it kind of it's hard to wrap my head around how Darwinian selection works then, because, you know, it's like everyone has a bucket of genes and natural and sexual selection is sort of choosing among the people. But each of us has this huge bucket of mixed up genes. And to the extent that selection is choosing based upon some discrete characteristic I mean, I guess if you do it enough times, it it comes out in the wash, but it does intuitively. It feels impossible. It know. does. It does. I agree with you, and I'm not a geneticist, so I I, I think um, what you're struggling with is somebody who. I spend most of my time studying behavior, um, and then you go talk to geneticist friends and. Um, and they'll say, well, you know, there are thousands of genes involved in that. And you sort of say, oh, man, this is hard to wrap your mind around. But but um, yeah, I mean, the argument is that, sure, there are thousands of genes involved, but there may be 15 that vary between different individuals related to some specific trait. And um, maybe it's dose dependent. Maybe if five of them are in a certain direction versus 10, you might have a little bit more. And so then selection could act on that variation. I mean, I think the main thing to take away isn't that there's less uh, or it's harder to explain natural selection because of this. It actually becomes easier because it means there's so much potential for variation because um, that's actually been the big challenge is not mm. as much – the, the big challenge for evolution hasn't been, oh, how would you explain how selection works? Um, because, you know, if it, I mean, it's a lawful property. If you're dead, you can't reproduce. Um, that's pretty easy um, to demonstrate. The harder part is where does the variation come from? And, you know, uh, when we're thinking Mendelian, uh, its mutation is the main player. But what I'm suggesting is actually um, 
if you don't have these one-to-one -one traits and you've got thousands of genes and you've got librarian genes, a tiny little change to certain genes, even not even how they're it like when they're expressed in development can have a massive effect. And so you can have big, big changes with in, in terms of what the body looks like or the behavior on a small change of when a gene is expressed early in development. You can get tremendous variation. Um, and so it actually helps explain uh, mm. how evolution works. And, and since we're going down this path, which I, I wasn't expecting to go down very far, but since we're mentioning Mendel, we might as well mention that Lamarck is also seeing a resurgence in importance, right? Where Lamarck, who was dismissed for, for decades, uh, arguing that, that behavior could affect the expression of genes and not just vice versa um there there does seem to be some some data pointing to the idea that uh cultural forces and also behavioral forces can affect which genes are activated so there's the genes we have in the bucket and then there, there are genes we pull out of the bucket in our behavior uh and then they can be favored based upon cultural conditions or, or environmental conditions yeah, there's famous where I mean, uh, my colleagues in my department, uh, Jenny Tong and Susan Alberts, they look at DNA methylization. Um, and that's mm. um, where genes sort of get marked uh, by stress and um, in early life experiences of an infant, say, baboon, where a gene gets um, uh, marked this way, um, it may be expressed less. And then that actually that environmental uh, perturbation gets passed on to their offspring through this chemical uh, marker. Um, and it may be a couple of generations before that gets kind of reset. And so um, that's, I think, the main mechanism people have been um, mm. uh, interested in sort of and, and taking them back to this idea of, uh, you know, um, uh, Lamarckian mechanisms. That's interesting. You said until it gets reset. So are, are you saying that there is sort of um, a template that we can vary from because of this methylization, but then we return to the template? Um, and this is a bit of a trick question because where I want to go next is why are bonobos so different from chimps? Okay. I have not read a satisfying explanation for that yet. I've read, you know, uh, was it Richard Lee or I forget who it was, who who argues that bonobos are more pro-social and highly sexual and friendly because they're on the other side of the Congo, I guess the southern side of the Congo. Yeah. And chimps have to compete with gorillas for some food sources. Is that is that the, the standing explanation for that? Uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, the, um, uh, just quickly back to the uh, methylation. Um, uh, I think the idea is that, um, you know, if you can have a gene marked, um, you know, over, you might pass that on uh, to a next generation and maybe the next generation pass. But, but if you're then in a rich environment, uh, that mechanism kind of weakens. And so I don't think you go back, I, I'm not sure how to think about it, whether it's a default or um, uh, or not, but the point is there's plasticity there where maybe for a couple of generations, you on certain genes, and of course this isn't across the entire genome, there's certain genes that seem to be, I think more or less 
vulnerable to this, but the, um, it can change how much those genes are expressed. You can pass that uh, on to a, uh, your offspring. And then depending on what their experience is, it might weaken that mechanism. And then maybe by grandchild, uh, you know, it's, it, you, maybe they're in, raised in abundance and it doesn't happen. And so, um, so then that interaction uh, doesn't occur anymore. Um, mm. So, so uh, it's just another example where there's plasticity in the system that people didn't know. Um, and, and then in terms of bonobos um, uh, and where their origin, uh, so what, I can tell you what we, where there isn't any disagreement. Um, is that uh, chimpanzees, bonobos share a common ancestor somewhere between one to two million years. Um, they definitely evolved in Central Africa uh, from that common ancestor. Um, we know that today bonobos only live south of the Congo River and that uh, in uh, human history, we have no evidence of uh, gorillas living south of the Congo River where, Congo, where uh, bonobos live. Um, uh, chimpanzees, bonobos are separated physically, so they don't ever interact um, uh, by the Congo River because neither species can swim. Um, and we know that this part of the world, uh, the forest, uh, increases and decreases with climate change. Um, and so the thinking is that uh, at, at uh, some point within a million, two years ago, there was um, a climate change where the common ancestor was actually separated into two parts of the Congo. Um, that forest shrunk enough where the river separated the two populations and they couldn't then, uh, they no longer could interbreed. And south of the Congo, uh, the thinking is if there was something ecologically different, and the key thing that we think must have been different um, is it must have been the environment was more predictable. It must have been that it was easier for females to find food and to find food more predictably than it is for female chimpanzees uh, than it would have been a million, two million years ago when that separation occurred. Something about that ecology had to be more predictable. And so then, then I think that's where there's a lot of agreement. Um, uh, then where it gets more difficult is, okay, well, what was the thing that made things more predictable? And one argument is, well, if you don't have gorillas, uh, the fallback food that chimpanzees eat when there's no fruit available, which is their main food, um, is, uh, terrestrial herbs, uh, on the ground. And guess what? That's the main food of gorillas. So if you're, if you're living in a gorilla world and you know, you go in the refrigerator is empty and you're like, Oh, I got to go to the canned food now. And you turn around and actually your teenager just took all the canned food to college with you. And now you're, you know, you're in trouble. Um, and bonobo land, there's nobody eating your canned food. And so, you know, yeah, you don't want to eat the canned food, but it's there if you need it. Um, and, and that means you can, you can more reliably hang out and not be worried about being hungry. Um, but that's one idea I can, I can, um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's not necessarily the only idea. Well, that, that idea, that explanation has never satisfied me because the, there's a, you know, embedded in natural selection is this sort of, um, assumption of Malthusian, saturation right that any population will grow to the point where whatever resources are available you know limit its further growth and so using your metaphor like okay the gorilla hasn't taken your canned food but there are plenty of animals in a jungle that eat terrestrial herbs right so presumably their population would grow to the point where that resource would be as limited 
by them, whether, you know, whatever, dikers or whatever animals in the jungle eat that particular food source. So it's that's never made sense to me because it's like, you know, quickly those um, animals would have the population would have increased so that that resource was just as limited, whether by gorillas or by something else. Um, yeah. So, so I, I, I understand, I completely understand the logic of what you're saying and it, and it can be confusing, but let me give you another example. Um, when you have organisms, uh, uh, colonize islands, um, uh, often what happens is, uh, especially if it's a small island, that's pretty far away. Um, you have a much more limited set of species that you're going to be competing with. Um, and so um, not only can you have a lot more speciation, um, but uh, also um, you may, especially as you start out, there's, um, you know, sort of fewer species you're competing with. And I think the argument in this case is that south of the Congo River, it's a little bit like an, an ape island. There was only one species of ape. And I agree with you that, uh, you know, isn't there something that else that eats those herbs? And the, and the answer is actually not really. Um, really? It's, yeah, it's the bonobos. Um, and so, so they kind of evolved to eat both uh, and cover both niches. Uh, in a way that uh, you don't see uh, those two individual species. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I'm sure we could talk to somebody who disagrees with that and, and, and uh, would agree with you that uh, they don't buy the idea. But I just wanted to tell you, I think it's like thinking about islands where mm -hmm. you're, you're going into yeah. a new space. It's an island. There's, there's, there, and so I think the prediction that, that I would make based on what you – and I agree with your argument is you might – in a few million years, see a speciation event where you get uh, a gorilla-like bonobo, uh, where actually because of what's known as niche partitioning, you've got one species that ends up being more chimp-like and one that's more gorilla-like, but it actually has a bonobo common ancestor. Um, that might be that might happen, but uh, there's not really anything um, that relies uh, on these uh, types of plants that I know of, um, that would be a direct competitor, uh, in bonobo land. So I, to me, the problem with that argument is those, those, those resources seem infinite to me. Um, uh, there's, they're everywhere. So really the gorillas eat all the, all that, but, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, it seems like it's all over the place. Um, well, it, it does raise a really interesting point and, and this goes to, um, you know, Civilized to Death and Sex at Dawn, two books that, that I've written, um, where I'm basically arguing against this Malthusian presumption, at least in terms of human evolution, right? Because so much of the sort of mainstream view of human evolution and the presence of violence in human evolution is this idea that humans were always in like a death struggle for scarce resources, Whereas when I look at the evolutionary past of humans, I see a species that can eat, you know, I don't know how many different species of plants and animals, you know, basically everything, right? Uh, we're very omnivorous. Our digestive system is able to eat so many different, to process so many different foods. And human population was very low. The planet was not saturated. One could argue it's not even quite saturated now, right? Based on industrial agriculture or whatever. Um, 
And so I don't see the logic of this presumption that people were always on the verge of starvation. I see this super clever, super adaptive, malleable species spreading into environments in which there was no real competition. Um, and so it, I don't know. I, you know, it's this weird thing where th there's wisdom in ignorance, but there's more ignorance in ignorance. So I'm aware of how ignorant I am of the real nitty gritty of genetics and evolutionary theory. And, you know, I've never studied these things formally at Harvard or Duke or, um, and so I don't know what I don't know, but that seems to be a false assumption about human evolution. And you've written about the evolution, the survival of the friendliness. So this is sort of a natural segue to the fact that nonviolence has, I think, an underappreciated evolutionary uh, advantage value that hasn't really been cooked into the discussion uh, as much as it should be. So uh, I do think uh, that survival of the fittest, which we're all familiar with, uh, is uh, probably one of the most misunderstood phrases in science. I think it's uh, often misconstrued to mean the biggest, the best, somehow um, the biggest group or the alpha male. The most aggressive. Yeah. The most aggressive is somehow intrinsically more valuable and deserving of more somehow. Um, and that those are the organisms or groups or individuals, whatever, who are who are somehow better. And I mean, normatively better. Um, that is obviously not what survival of the fittest was meant to mean biologically. Uh, and the, it's a very narrow definition. It just means that organisms are optimizing reproduction and reproductive success, um, which has a very specific definition in biology. Um, so survival of the fittest means the you know, basically your ability to reproduce and pass on uh, your heritable information to future generations. Um, and so if you take a step back, and the reason that our book is called Survival of the Friendliest, if you take a step back and you ask the question, okay, well, if you look at Earth, and the organisms that have been not just successful, but I mean super successful, um, have crushed it in life. Uh, I think almost every single one, uh, the answer is there was a new type of friendliness that evolved uh, in that organism or class of organisms that then allowed for a new type of cooperation. And it allowed them to uh, uh, win in a big way at life and um, in their ability to, you know, leave many, many offspring. Um, so we can, you know, it, uh, we could start with flowering plants uh, that are actually a relatively recent evolutionary uh, event in the evolution of plant life. Um, and basically it is, I will trade you some food if you will help me pollinate. And now they dominate the landscape. Uh, everywhere you have a plant, you're going to have flowering plants that if you you know, travel back uh, tens of millions of years, that's just not the case. Um, and so super, super successful strategy of cooperating with uh, animals um, in a new friendly way. Uh, another example uh, would be penguins. There's only uh, one terrestrial vertebrate that can live year round on Antarctica other than ourselves. Uh, of course, we're very much helped by fossil fuels, so minus fossil fuels, and it's penguins. And the secret of the penguin and the reason that emperor penguins uh, can spend the winter in Antarctica is because unlike pigeons on the 
on the uh, power line that have to be separated from each other because they don't get along and they're not tolerant of individuals crowding in their space. Penguins are actually attracted to each other and they like to be close together and that actually keeps them warm for the winter. They, they form these huge packs um, where they smash into each other and they basically hug all winter to stay warm. It's a type of friendliness. It's that it led to a type of cooperation that means survival in a place that no other organism can survive. Uh, and we can move to um, uh, cleaner wrasse. They're the fish that clean the mouths of other predatory fish. Uh, a fear was replaced with attraction. They actually swim into the mouths of predators uh, and they clean the, the teeth of the predators and they make a very good living by doing something that on the surface seems really, really stupid. Uh, See, that that's a great example of an evolutionary step I can't wrap my head around. How did the predatory fish that did not eat that... So, you're a predatory fish, you've got your mouth open. This other <laughs> fish comes into your mouth, cleans out your your whatever f meat is stuck in between your teeth, and you allow it to do that. You don't just close your mouth and eat that fish, which is an evolutionary cost. You're letting that easy yeah. meal go. Yeah. And down the road, you've got, what, less tooth decay or something, which allows you to have to spawn more and somehow... Like, you see what I mean? It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to see the steps, isn't it? Um, I yeah, don't see I, how I, it works. I, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, but fish are wonderful. They really help on these things. <laughs> um, uh, we we all love fish. They yes. they are wonderful because there's so many good experiments. So so the um, uh, but but the um, the long and the long is uh, one of the other things is that cleaner ass don't just go immediately into the mouth. They also clean the body. And so probably what happens is first we're cleaning the body. Um, and one of the things that happens just like in, um, uh, you know, mammals, primates is as you're grooming and there's physical touch, um, there's the equivalent of oxytocin in fish. And so they kind of relax. Uh, they, they kind of, Oh, this is kind of nice. I'm getting kind of a massage. Um, and so, uh, you know, eventually, yes, there's individual variation. Some fish really relax and some fish are like, oh, I don't really know. Oh, you're in my mouth. Ah. Uh, and, and so, um, so there'll be a, a give and take there, but the individuals who are able to relax and don't eat the cleaner. Yes, actually it ends up, there's tremendous mortality from parasitism in fish mouths. And if you let these things fester, I mean, there's that parasite that actually replaces the tongue of the fish. Have you seen that thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't want that. You do not want that. That does not lead to more babies when your tongue is replaced by this worm thing. Um, and, it makes and, kissing really interesting. Oh, oh, right. And so, so yeah, cleaner rats all of a sudden sound like there's a there's a need for those guys. So, so. Um, so yeah, I think there's a tremendous mortality that is uh, prevented by relaxing and letting this thing climb around your body and eventually into your into your face, and uh, it ends up that that attraction um, uh, alters the cleaner wrasse in ways that are kind of equivalent to wolf to dog. Um, a lot of the changes we talked about um, when we were describing the foxes, you can recognize in those cleaner wrasse when you look at their close relatives that are not cleaners. Um, in the same way. But uh, another example, though, where friendliness is, is, is really a majorly successful strategy. And then we can go to dogs, uh, hundreds of millions of dogs all over the planet, everywhere you find humans. Sadly, wolves are endangered everywhere they remain. 
Um, they are almost genetically indistinguishable. The main thing that has been altered is uh, dogs are attracted and um, uh, friendly towards people, attracted to and friendly towards people. It's a new type of friendliness, leads to this new relationship. And the argument we make in the book, Survival of Friendliest, is that that's what leads to uh, the, our species of human uh, outcompeting other species of human. Because when you were telling the Malthusian story, I think the sort of detail I would add to your, you know, uh, head scratching, uh, you know, paradox there is that uh, we were not alone. Uh, and that's sort of one of the new big discoveries. I know, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, people have become more, uh, um, there's more and more evidence that we weren't alone till probably at, uh, at least 50, maybe even 25,000 years ago, there were other human species. So as you're saying, we're populating and going into these, you know, open, empty areas. Uh, well, Eurasia wasn't empty. Um, you know, there were, there were actually other humans, our species of human would have encountered. And all these other species had big brains. They had, uh, they left behind cultural evidence. I would argue that they almost certainly would have linguistic capabilities that we would recognize. Those are typically the things we think of when we say that's what makes us different from animals. Mm. And there were four to five species of humans at least that had all of those traits and they're all extinct. And what I would submit is that uh, if those traits lead to extinction, you know, four out of five times, I'm not sure that's the secret to our success. Uh, you know, I think the secret to our success has to be something else. And I think it was a, a new type of friendliness that, uh, that combined with big brains and cultural abilities and uh, linguistic skills allowed us to survive and be successful. So I do... Right. I do think it is uh, a new type of friendliness that was the secret to our success. You know, the, um, the Robert Sapolsky story about the, the baboons who come and, and eat the tainted meat at the dump near the hotel and all the alpha males took the, all the meat for themselves. So they all died. And then that troop uh, sort of shifted sure. its behavior. Right. So sure. a lot of that aggression that those alpha male coalitions were in, imposing uh on the group disappeared it's been years since i've spoken to him but last time i spoke to him i asked him about that and he said that that troop that sort of elevated friendliness in that troop had persisted so there and that males young males who come into the troop each year as is the baboon sort of custom uh expecting to rape and pillage come in and find all these like chilled out hippies and that it rather than it being the sort of uh violent intruder scenario these guys learn to chill out and go with the flow which leads to a really interesting idea that there is this like the power of peace is palpable not to yeah, alliterate would, too much yeah and i would say uh, one of the other things we try to confront in our new book, Survival of the Friendliest, is this idea that being dominant aggressive is always somehow beneficial. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. There's decades of work showing that um, being alpha, being dominant, it is a type of strategy um, and it can be successful, but it comes with cost. There, it's actually incredibly costly uh, to be dominant. Um, and, uh, we know that we're going back to work with baboons like Sapolsky and, uh, Jenny Tung and Susan Alberts have, uh, documented all of them, uh, 
that being alpha is incredibly stressful, that life is short, uh, and that those individuals don't stay on top for very long. There's another strategy that can evolve um, because what happens is when those co- when the when the cost of being alpha no longer is uh, sorry the benefit of being alpha is no longer greater than that cost, it's no longer favored anymore. Selection yeah. is not going to favor that. And, and so back to the bonobos, the argument is that that's exactly what happened in bonobos. Um, males no longer uh, being a despot and trying to be alpha paid big dividends and uh, natural selection actually favored friendliness. And so think about the wrasse. Think about the dogs. Think about friendliness is selected for all the time in nature. And it's usually incredibly successful uh, as a strategy, and it's what happened with bonobos. There was uh, a change in that cost benefit, and friendly males were at a way bigger uh, advantage. And today, both of the field sites, um, and this is just rifting, riffing off your version that's sort of a, uh, an accidental event in the baboons, but one that we now think is uh, part of bonobo biology uh, because it happened over millions of years, the same process. Um, the most successful male bonobos in both long-term field sites that have been studied for you know decades now, where we have paternity data, um, the most successful bonobo males have more offspring than the most successful chimpanzee despots that have ever been measured. So what I'm trying to tell you is the friendly bonobo males that don't have infanticide, they don't have intergroup warfare, uh, females are kind of you know able to dominate any one male. Um, they actually have more offspring if they are preferred by the females than any male despot in chimpanzees. That's so interesting. The friendliest mm-hmm. males win. They win big. And I, I cannot tell you that there is overwhelming evidence that in a species, in an ecology where friendliness is favored, it has huge evolutionary dividends. So do you trace human evolution? I know I know for people who don't know this data in detail, we did not evolve from chimps or bonobos. We evolved from a common ancestor that they shared, what, five to seven million years ago, something like that? Yeah, that date's getting knocked around a lot recently. People I've seen that. And seven to nine. So uh, It's science. And, uh, you know, as the ancient DNA technology has gotten better, as more fossils have been discovered, that date's shifting around. But I think with uh, I would go with seven again if we were going to force me to say something. Right. And they yeah smaller. I I mean, does it frustrate you as much as it frustrates me when you read that chimps are humans closest primate relative and that humans evolved from chimps. And because bonobos until very recently have been left out of the discussion uh, and their behavior and the, you know, the reproductive influences on them are pressures on them are so different from chimps, as you've just described. Um, and I feel like there's a sort of mainstream uh, bias toward man, the hunter, man, dominating woman, you know, there's a misogynistic bias in a lot of uh, mainstream scientific discussion until very recently. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, and I think, it, I mean, it's frustrating, but it's also fascinating. Um, you know, as somebody who I, I, I'm actively work on the board of a nonprofit that promotes bonobo conservation, um, you know, it could be really frustrating. Uh, and there, but there's interesting uh, historical, sociopolitical reasons why this may be. Um, yeah. Uh, the first of which is bonobos are only from one country that happens to be a francophone uh, country um, that was, um, you know, not, uh, you know, anglophone science that led a lot of the early primatology that became so famous in the United States. Um, it was it, they didn't go to the Congo. And so um, we've known very little about bonobos for a long time, not to mention all the other historical um, issues in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there's that. Um, and uh, I do also think that there, as you say, there was sort of, um, uh, especially in cultures where uh, group hierarchies were sort of implicitly or explicitly um, resonated or even promoted, uh, oh, this idea that there's this, you know, male patriarchy and, you know, alpha despot and, you know, um, I, I think that resonated with people. I think bonobos are super fun because they challenge a lot of that. And even within science um, and the scientific community, there was a lot of skepticism uh, about uh, the science because um, even bonobo science then got um, sort of in response to the to that cultural political then bonobos were sort of used in, in the reverse way. And so then people got mad that, you know, and, and so um, that, you know, this, they were being used in this other way or whatever, and is it accurate or mischaracterization, et cetera. But, um, you know, I can just tell you the facts, which is that, um, uh, you know, bonobos are uh, less aggressive than chimpanzees if defined by evidence of lethal aggression. Um, uh, it's still the case that no bonobo has ever been observed to kill another bonobo. Uh, no other great ape, uh, including humans, we can say that about. Uh, there's never been an observed infanticide. Uh, gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees, humans all uh, commit infanticide. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, are bonobos female dominated? That's been a big debate. Uh, I wrote a paper recently with a student where we actually argued that bonobos are baby dominant. Because Ooh. I actually think that what really drove the evolution of their social system and their psychology was females protecting their infants from infanticide. And if you want to know, to me, what their social system is all about, it is the complete victory of the female bonobo over infanticide. Um, and so everything in their social system is about preventing infanticide. Um, which from a female perspective is a horrific thing, uh, both psychologically, but from a reproductive success point of view. And so uh, females work together, they prevent infanticide. Uh, and uh, again, there's not a single case. And so I think bonobos are baby dominant um, because uh, if you've been around them as much as me and interact with them, uh, you start to realize, and I've spent a lot of time with chimpanzees too in personal interactions with them, and you realize that's something that really is remarkably different. Um, that if there's a baby bonobo that is in distress of any kind, everybody's coming to protect them, the whole group. And in chimpanzees, I mean, mom's coming, maybe a sibling, maybe. Um, 
uh, but the sibling could as much, you know, swipe them while they're down. Um, in Bonobo Land, if there's a baby in distress, you better get the heck out of there because everybody's coming. Um, and so it's all about defending those babies. And, that, and I think that's the origin of, uh, you know, all of the secret to their success. I would say also the other thing is um, I, I, one fun anecdote, if I can, tell a story on Anderson Cooper. Um, I, I did a, a 60 minute piece with him uh, in Kinshasa on the bonobos at Lola Ya Bonobo, which is the sanctuary we work at. And it was wonderful. He went, we were going to, you know, the bonobos, that's a beautiful piece and they did such a nice job. But I remember talking to him and, and he was really obviously interested as all humans are. Um, and he's a big guy, so I don't mind picking on him a little bit about this um, uh, because I think, he re I think he represents all of us. Um, you know, we're all fascinated by this sexual behavior that, um, you know, uh, the joke is that bonobos are trisexual or whatever. They'll try anything sexual. Um, and that's all true. They, they have this um, social sexual behavior um, uh, that's quite remarkable um, and differs from chimpanzees in interesting ways. But I kept trying to reorient him and, and recenter him and trying to tell him when we were making this piece, I promise you, Anderson, that's not the interesting thing. I think that if bonobos knew that that's what we thought was fascinating, they would think we were uh, pretty un unimpressive, you know, and maybe even immature because they don't kill each other. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I think they would think we're pretty repressed and that we recognize something in them that is a reflection of us that we're afraid to talk about, right? That's true. That's fair enough. Um, you know, along with, with your point, the, the not killing each other. And I, I don't think those two things are unrelated, right? I mean, sexual frustration is, you know, underlies most of the armies that have ever marched on this planet, you know? Um, there's a reason you can rape and pillage out there. It's because, you know, you're not getting any at home, so... The best way for or the best way for you to impress women is to go kill people that we tell you to kill. I mean, there are so many mechanisms built into that. But speaking of like violence and sexuality, you listed no infanticide, no murder among bonobos. Um, I have also read no rape. But then recently I read uh, I forget who it was, but it's a female primatologist who was working with bonobos and she argued that rape actually occurs, but it's the females who rape the males because when a male is distressed, he gets an erection. And so she witnesses this behavior where a female keeps harassing a male, trying to get him to copulate, and he's resistant. And finally, she like sort of dominates him and he's screaming in a distress call. Do you know anything about this? Have you heard about this? Uh, well, I mean, I've spent enough time with bonobos to see how somebody could observe something that would then lead them to that conclusion. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Rape is a very complicated word talking yeah. about non-human yeah. animals, of course. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and uh, you know, when we communicate about science, we always have this editorial thing where we're trying to say complicated stuff quickly because we only right. have so much attention span. But uh, um, definitely uh, – and, and, and the other thing that gets um, – sort of in the editorial process gets sort of um, muddled is yes, bonobos have a lot of socio-sexual behavior, which is a funny way to say uh, they rub genitals all over everything all the time, but that's different than intercourse. 
Right. So, so, so there's a lot of genital rubbing, um, uh, fraudage or whatever you want to call it. Um, but that's not intercourse. Um, and so, um, whatever that female was doing, um, I'm imagining it's more along the lines of genital rubbing, fraudage. It doesn't necessarily, maybe there was intercourse involved. I don't know. But, but, uh, I think that's some of the concern when people have said, oh, the, cause, cause one of the concerns people say is, oh, the, the bonobo sexual behavior is overblown. Um, well, if you're talking about intercourse, okay, fine. Yeah. I mean, probably it is. But if you're talking about genital rubbing, um, I don't know if it's that overblown when it comes to tensions in the group. Um, if they're really extreme tensions in the group, like feeding or any kind of fight or conflict like this, I mean, I've just seen so many times where, um, you know, there's some kind of, uh, stress, whatever it is. And instead of fighting, there's sort of a release of that tension with general rubbing. Um, and then I've also seen what you're talking about where there's some manipulation, um, where, you know, I've seen um, it both ways where, you know, there's um, uh, food that a male has that a female wants and she'll use uh, the opportunity for a genital rubbing to kind of get snatched and steal the food she wants. And then she's like, see ya once um, she gets what she wants. And I've seen the other way where, uh, you know, maybe a male bonobo will stress out a female so that she'll, um, you know, ha- have a general copulation with him. And I've also seen same sex, same thing. So, I mean, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's specific to any dyad without having to, you know, you'd have to really carefully measure. Um, but certainly you can see females causing stress in males and then they have sociosexual interactions for sure right because this this gg rubbing this genital rubbing is often a response to stress well uh, yes i can uh, and and you and the way that we can talk about that that i think is and one of the observations was helpful for me it was kind of terrible to see but it's it's um is that in a non-social context where bonobos are, um, you know, I play cognitive games and we separate them and they volunteer to play games with us, but they make a mistake. Um, They're not understanding the the game. They're not doing well. And often what happens is they want to genital, they want to have a genital genital rub and they may rub on the floor or they may. um, And so um, it it seems to be, and, and, and the, the hypothesis is that probably that, um, genital contact releases oxytocin which is an antagonist to cortisol and it reduces stress um and so they can feel better um and that's probably what the what's going on mechanistically it's interesting that that mechanism doesn't appear to have affected chimpanzee uh evolution uh it i would argue that it has affected human evolution i would argue that i have argued that a lot of these traits that we see in bonobos are shared by humans and not necessarily by chimps. I, I once asked Franz Duvall, uh, maybe you know this, can bonobos and chimps, if a bonobo and a chimp uh, have sex, will they have viable offspring? Do we know that? Yes, they can. Um, and so this gets into deep questions about how do we define what a species, what a species is. <laughs> That's um, I followed up with. Yeah, I followed up with Franz on that, and he, and he, he there was this long pause, and he looked at me and he said, "Never ask a biologist to define species." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's 
uh, that's that he's wiser than me but uh <laughs> but but the data is yes i mean unfortunately and it's all and, and i say unfortunate because these are both endangered animals and um they are beings that deserve the utmost respect and so playing around and creating hybrids i don't think is respecting them as as individuals or the organism uh and the way that they deserve to be treated but but um but that aside mm-hmm. um uh, there are people who have, uh, by accident or intent, um, uh, crossbred. Luckily, it has not happened frequently. Um, but yes, there are um, uh, some. There, there are a handful of individuals who uh, have, uh, you know, bonobo and chimp uh, parentage. So, and do we have any data on them behaviorally, or is it so contaminated by the unique, uniqueness of the situation? Because I'm wondering if you took a chimp, because I, I remember Franz did this experiment with, I, I don't know if it was macaques or two, two substring. Yeah. Right, where you bring them over and, and yeah. they, what happened? The, the more violent species adapted to the more peaceful context, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, if you cross foster, um, there's enough plasticity, or you know, there's enough play there in in the development that uh, if you're raised in the more Pacific uh, species, you are going to be a little bit less, you know, aggressive and and vice versa. So, and that's been shown uh, in multiple. Franz did it uh, before him. Uh, Hans Kummer did it with Anubis and uh, Hamadryas baboon. That kind of cross fostering, um, not right. as early in development as Franz did, but yeah, there's there's play there, and no one's done that with bonobos and chimps. But but um, uh, you know, often people ask me questions like this i don't think that's what you're driving at but but just for fun since often people wonder um they'll say well you know can they interbreed and um i have to remind them that they live in separate places and they say well if chimpanzees live where bonobos live wouldn't they wipe out the bonobos and i always find that fascinating that people just assume that somehow chimpanzees would do better um, and I think the answer is no. I think the answer is that, um, you know, it's so costly, the social system of chimpanzees, um, that I think it would be much easier for the bonobos to outcompete. Um, and uh, I, I submit to you again the fact that the most successful bonobo males have more offspring than the most successful alpha males. So when you have that cost-benefit change, uh, friendliness wins. There's so many examples where friendliness wins. It's not like, oh, friendliness only evolves if they're not the bad guys there. No, it just it just wins. It's better. It's a better strategy if, if the ecology favors friendliness and allows for it. Um, then it's going to win because it's less costly and it has way more benefits. And when would the ecology not favor it? Because I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about abundance uh, being a pro-social context, but I'm thinking also scarcity, you know, among hunter-gatherers, you know, uh, the, the Inuit people, for example, are super strict about sharing and welcoming any stranger who happens to wander you know to the village you bring them in you take care of them you feed them you know societies like afghanistan pakistan there's so many you know if you look at societies in which uh food is not abundant and risk is high they tend to be the most welcoming of strangers um and i so i'm i'm having trouble imagining a sort of natural context in which friendliness is not the most adaptive behavior 
Well, I mean, you know, in the game theoretical, uh, you know, scenarios where you have hawks and doves playing it out, I mean, you can certainly arrange things where uh, friendliness doesn't uh, pan out, depending on what the context is. Um, and uh, but I but but just to back up and say, you know, the argument we make in the book is we we sort of. Uh, give examples of where friendliness wins and we uh, lay out what we think the ecological context may have been. Um, But I would say a whole area of research would be why does friendliness evolve uh, and what's the pattern that allows for it to evolve and when is it that actually uh, more aggression is favored? Because of course more aggression is also favored uh, in certain contexts. Um, and so you see in primates all sorts of variability in social systems where you have uh, the Muraki of South America. They're very egalitarian. There's very little aggression, but their very close relative um, is the spider monkey, and they're more like chimpanzees, and they're more aggressive. Um, you have uh, colobus monkeys that live in Zanzibar that are more like bonobos, but their close relative, red colobus of the same species on the mainland, are much more aggressive. So mm-hmm. it is that this is um, uh, aggression and uh, friendliness are sort of constantly being shifted around. Uh, and so it's a whole research program to understand why one wins out over the other and in which situation um, they're favored. I think in the case of humans, just to play on your hunter-gatherer example, the argument we make in the book is, yes, it is absolutely the case that bonobo, or sorry, that humans were have a new form of friendliness. And that form of friendliness is kind of, to riff off what you were saying, an attraction to uh, strangers that you recognize being of your same group. Uh, and as long as they share an identity with you somehow, that you recognize them instantly as potential friends. We both like science and care about human nature and, uh, you know, uh, society, et cetera. We instantly recognize each other as we never met each other, but we know we're going to get along and have a great time because we care about the same things. We have a shared identity. We can be friends immediately. Um, That's the only species that's ever evolved that has the ability to recognize identity and immediately be xenophilic or attracted to strangers with that identity, that shared identity. And there's so much plasticity or flexibility in what that is. It's um, uh, another part of the amazing, uh, you know, um, mental gymnastics possible there. But the flip side of that is, and what we make the argument in the book, is it also explains the paradox of... uh, you know, the intergroup aggression that we uh, struggle with uh, as a species, it explains both our kindness and cruelty. And of course, this is um, uh, inspired a lot by Richard Wrangham and his thinking on the same paradox. Um, But the thinking is that uh, as we uh, evolve uh, an attraction to strangers who share our social identity, we start to view them as if they're kin and we love them as if they're kin. Um, and think of a, my favorite analogy is a polar bear or metaphor. Uh, polar bear mom, nothing more beautiful than her playing with her cubs, and they're you know so nurturing and loving. But when is the moment that is most dangerous to be near her? Um, when she has cubs, because she loves them and she will do anything to protect them. Uh, and so the same thing happens with us, but with our social identities and the strangers that we see as like us, that we start to love as if they're kin or or, or even our um, you know. Uh, offspring. Um, and when they're threatened uh, or our identity is threatened, then we become horrifically um, uh, violent and the cruelest species potentially. Um, so we we sort of um, 
play out how back to the original question about dogs and understanding communication and cooperative communication, how that ability likely evolved due to the selection for this type of friendliness, this special type of friendliness in our species, and how it had a huge advantage because as we were attracted to those who shared our identity, we could learn, collaborate, um, invent, uh, and, uh, you know, ratchet uh, all sorts of cultural uh, innovations together in a faster way. Uh, we outcompete all the other species through this new type of friendliness. Sure, they had technology, sure, they had culture, but we could totally, uh, you know, put that on turbo boost and uh, mm. outcompete them as a result. But the flip side of that is because we care about those that share identity so much that when those are threatened, when that identity is threatened, um, we have actually a mechanism to shut down that unique cooperative communication so that we morally exclude those that are threatening uh, the individuals that share identity with us. And that moral exclusion leads to dehumanization. And um, that's where you have the worst of human nature showing itself. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we could go down this, this this line. I wonder if we're the only species that that extends this sort of kin love to other species. I mean, I've seen, for example, um, mother dogs that allow kittens to, uh, you know, suck at their teeth, and and you know, there there's cross species maternal behavior, right? Um, and, and you see species interacting in ways that seem to show that they're accepting this other animal as one of them somehow. So I guess it's not unique to humans and dogs. Um, no, I, think, I was telling. I, go ahead. Yeah, there are examples where uh, species uh, do all sorts of uh, mutually cooperative uh, behaviors that are sort of surprising at first, but then you see that they both benefit. And then there are also just accidents where – uh, the maternal mechanism sort of, you know, it looks beautiful and it's wonderful, but probably it's just a little misfire. Just confusion. Um, yeah, a little confusion, <laughs> uh, a little extra love there that may not necessarily make much sense evolutionarily. Um, yeah. And, mo you know, like a lot of the books that have uh, people love these books with pictures and stories of animals, different species that become friends. Um, when you actually study those books, it's almost 90 percent of those stories. Are, there's a dog involved. And uh -huh. one of the things that happens during dog evolution is that their um, uh, early window of attachment kind of expands, not only in terms of temporally, but also in terms of what they're able to attach to. Um, and so an, a, in, early in a dog's development, if they're exposed to some organism uh, that's not actually their own species, they'll bond as if it's a conspecific and uh, you, you have our relationship with them. We, it just happens to be they normally do it with us, but they could do it with all sorts of other animals too. Right, right. That's interesting. I was telling a story last night about how this we're talking about painful experiences we've had with animals, you know, mm. uh, that that had to die. You know, mm. the uh, a horse. My buddy had to shoot a horse. You know, and mm. that he loved. And and I was telling the story about um, this cat I had that uh, 
developed a, a problem that was, you know, unfixable. And uh, mm-hmm. so I took her to the vet and, and this whole thing. And then later, I, you know, I was heartbroken. But later I thought, like, man, these cats are killers. Cats don't have any compassion, right? <laughs> like, it's weird how it's such a one-way relationship. I think with dogs, it's more two-way um, but with cats, they're like, yeah, whatever, dude. You know, like if you were small, I'd kill you and eat your head, you know. But since you're big, I'll, you know, purr and get on your lap. I, it, it's a weird, I mean, is there evidence that cats have any of these capacities that, that you've located in dogs? Yeah, for the, you know, of all the hot topics we've talked about, this is the where I get the most nervous, believe it or not. And I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna plead the fifth on this one. Um, uh, uh, cause, um, is Vanessa a cat person? Yeah, no, but, but they're out there. Um, <laughs> and they're mean. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I love the cat lawyer. Um, not to, uh, <laughs> um, no, but I, I would say what we have evidence for in dogs that we don't yet have evidence for in cats, uh, to keep it purely, uh, scientific and boring is, uh, an oxytocin loop. Uh, uh-huh. so, so there is evidence that as you interact with your dog, make eye contact, physically touch your dog, that it increases the oxytocin, it, uh, in your body, it increases it in the dog. Um, and so that's been interpreted as evidence for social bonding. It's the same mechanism that, uh, allows for, uh, parental offspring bonding in our own species within species, but it seems that dogs have hijacked that, mm. uh, and in our interaction, when you're feeling love for your dog, it's because, you know, there's actually a physiological response or evidence for one. And, um, you know, one fun way to say it is they're hugging us with their eyes. Uh, they're not just trying to beg off your sandwich. Um, and to be uh, scientific about it, uh, we don't have uh, the test or the evidence for the same thing in cats. Um, I'm sure someone will work on that. <laughs> very, very diplomatic. Uh, okay, I don't want to take up your whole day here, but I did want to ask you, because my first awareness of you, I think, was in um, Vanessa Wood's book, Bonobo Handshake, uh, which, you know, shout out to that book. Uh, it's an, Thank it's you, a yeah. Fa- fantastic read about the way you two met. It's interesting. It's a, it's a bonobo love story, kind of. Um, <laughs> And I've co-authored a book with my wife, so there's another thing we have in common. Yes, uh, I know. Uh, yeah, we can talk about the challenges and joys of that off the air sometime. That's right. Uh, when me, but, you, Brian, and Cosby, we're all hugging. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, all hugging, yeah, man. Talk about it. <laughs> big, big group group hug. A little penis fencing, maybe. That's right. Um, but uh, I did want to ask you what it was like to be a character in that book. Because that, yeah. it was very intimate. I mean, some of the stories that she tells in that book, it's about your early relationship. And, and I don't remember the details, but I do remember at times like, wow, this is, I wonder what kind of conversations they had about what gets included and what doesn't, you know? <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, I, uh, I try to be the best bonobo male I can be every day. <laughs> 
Um, and, uh, you know, as a result of that, uh, it does mean that there's a lot of female choice, uh, and, uh, I don't get a lot of veto rights on different things. And, and so, uh, you know, I was just there applauding and encouraging and what went in there, what, what went in there. I think the one play, we didn't really talk about much at all. I was fine with it. I was just so happy that there was going to be this, um, uh, tool to get people excited about bonobos and think about human nature juxtaposition that uh i i didn't care what you said about me really but uh um but i think the one thing we talked about was there's a scene there where in the book where um i get really mad at her and you know there's almost potential for violence um and that was the one where it was like oh my god are we gonna put this in the book or not and that was the one where she asked me are you sure you want that in there and um, so I appreciated that she asked me. But in the end, the answer was yes. Uh, yeah, I think so. Because, um, you know, the whole book was about uh, bonobos not having lethal aggression and the potential for human genocide in the background of Congo. But the worry was that um, people would come away thinking, oh, only Congolese people can be that way. And so yeah. when, when the main protagonist, which, and it's a true story, I got really mad and there was a moment where it could have been bad, uh, you know, um, I thought, hey, I, let's just do it because, um, you know, I think people need to know that, you know, I, we were trying to subtly make the point that, you know, um, it's not just one group of people, anybody, all of us have right. to struggle. So that right. was the one place we talked about uh, yeah, that's probably the scene I was thinking of. I like I say, I read it when it came out, which was probably ten years ago, uh, roughly. Um, but I do remember feeling like uh, this is an interesting and um, courageous. Uh, you know that that it, it's not. It could very easily have been a just look how cool we are, look how great our lives are. We're we're in love. Everything's wonderful. And to include some sort of real life challenges and, um, you know, details that that other people would have filtered out, I thought was uh, an admirable choice. So I applaud you for that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it was funny because I think very few noticed, at least that we ever heard about. Maybe people were too embarrassed to say anything to us, but only a few people have raised it. Uh, So I appreciate the question because it was it was, um, you know, if you emotionally, it was one of the hardest parts, right? And I think that's yeah. why you're picking up on it. Uh, but you know, um, it was one of the least discussed things. So it's fun to think about it with you. Yeah. Hey, listen, I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate this. I've been looking forward to to talking with you, Me too. And Me picking too. your brain for years, man. Uh, and I will certainly let you know next time I'm hanging out with Crosby and Brian and we'll try to get you in the pub. All right. <laughs> I love it. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one then we now have some new things added we've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called oh civilized to death design. they're all civilized That's right. to death. we have stickers and car decals right yes okay there you have it that's julie my mom 
He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground. 